great time of worship this morning. You know, there's certainly a lot of confusion in this world concerning Christmas. And no doubt you've noticed uh, some of it yourself, maybe in, you know, one of the uh, sappy TV uh, specials that they play uh, this time of year, or maybe it's by something that you've heard uh, neighbors, coworkers, friends around you say, uh, just a lot of confusion about what really is happening at Christmas. Just, just as an illustration of the confusion in this world, consider this, this news article that I came across uh, earlier this month. It says this, a school principal in Nebraska was placed on administrative leave the first week of December after sending a memo to staff urging a ban on Christmas items in the school. Jennifer Sinclair was temporarily removed from her position Thursday after telling staff some unacceptable practices included singing Christmas carols, using items that have red and green colors. Candy canes were also outlawed as, quote, historically the shape is a J for Jesus, the red is for the blood of Christ, and the white is a symbol of his resurrection, end quote, Sinclair told faculty. And this would also, though, include different colored candy canes. Also on the naughty list were Santa Claus, Christmas trees, Christmas music, and making Christmas ornaments as gifts. The principal said that it was a way to be, quote, inclusive and culturally sensitive to all students. So I'm guessing what she meant was I inclusive and sensitive to all the students except for the 98% of them that wanted to celebrate Christmas, I, I think is what she meant there. Uh, she went on to say, I feel uncomfortable that I have to get this specific, but for everyone's comfort, I will. She did include a list of permitted items for celebrating what she called the season, which included snowflakes, hot chocolate, polar bears, penguins, and sledding. And if you're wondering what any of those things have to do with celebrating Christmas, the answer is, I have no idea. In our American culture, where it seems like anything related to Christianity is under attack, there really is a great deal of confusion about what is and isn't acceptable for Christmas, especially in some of our public schools. But even worse than that, of course, is the confusion that people have concerning about why we're celebrating Christmas at all. What, what does it even mean? What's Christmas all about? Because if you ask people what Christmas is all about, you're going to get a lot of different answers. And so today we're going to continue the series that we've been on called Challenged by Jesus, where we're looking at some of the questions that Jesus asked. This particular question does have a Christmas theme, and I, I think it's just as appropriate and, and powerful of a question today as it was back when Jesus first asked it. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew. If you haven't turned there yet, I would encourage you to do so. Matthew chapter 22. We'll be looking at several verses there, but his question is found in verse 22. Um, follow along as I read verses 41 and then his question in 42. 
which says this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship together, to join our hearts in song and in giving and in fellowship and in praise. But right now, we want to join our hearts and our minds as we contemplate your word. God, we pray your spirit would be free to work in our hearts and our lives today. We ask that you would do what you will to draw us to you, to make us more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so to get the most out of this uh, question, we have to first understand, of course, the context uh, that it was asked in. And, and then we have to make sure we actually understand the question because it's not a question that most people uh, are asking today. So first, the, the context, we, we have to move all the way back to verse 1 in this chapter uh, to see what's going on. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, okay, and remember the word them because we're going to come back to finding out who them is in a little bit. But basically, the context is Jesus is teaching by means of parables. And parables are, are made-up stories using common, everyday experiences that teach a, a significant, specific, spiritual truth. Parables were Jesus' favorite way of teaching. And often... When he would finish up a teaching with a parable, Jesus would say something like, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The idea being that since this story is about a spiritual lesson, a, a person has to be in tune with, uh, or at least seeking God, to be able to fully understand them. And, and actually that's true of any spiritual truth. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Natural man meaning an, un, an, an unsaved person. And perhaps you've experienced that even yourself. You're, you're talking to someone who is not saved, and, and, and you're talking about some spiritual truth from Scripture, and to you... It's just, it's plain as day. I mean, it makes perfect sense. But the person you're talking with has a less than enthusiastic response. And maybe they even go, you know, uh, I don't really get that. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't, I don't see how that fits together. That, that doesn't really appeal to me. And you're thinking, what? I mean, it's right here. It's so obvious. What do you mean you don't get it? And because they are not in tune with God or even seeking Him, it's all foolishness to them. That's the way parables work. Jesus taught in parables so that those who were truly in their hearts seeking after God, they would they would get the message and understand. Others, not so much. So now that brings us back to the context here 
uh, that's what a parable was. That's what Jesus was doing, teaching in parables. But it says he was teaching them. Who's the them? Well, the them was a large crowd of people made up of three distinct groups. The first group was, uh, were those who were his disciples, those who had already committed themselves to Jesus Christ and were choosing to follow him. The second group was, was just the general masses of people. This represented, of course, the largest part of, of the group. And they were made up of people who were uh, enamored with Jesus. They were amazed at Jesus' teaching, or they were at least curious uh, uh, about him. They liked him, but they weren't necessarily committed to him. They weren't following him. Some of them might have been truly seeking God, wanting to find out what this is all about. Others were maybe just there for the fun and excitement of it. And, and then... There was the third group. This was the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes, the the religious leaders. And they were there in opposition to Christ. They opposed his teaching. They wanted to cut him down. So that's the them. And it says that Jesus then tells this eclectic group a parable. And it's a story about a king who was giving a wedding feast for his son. And since he was king, it was expected that if you received an invitation, you would, in fact, show up and come. You don't say no to the king. And the time arrived for the wedding feast, and so the king sent his slaves out to to announce to all the invitees that it's ready, they need to come. And everybody just ignored them and and so uh, the slaves came back and said well well, nobody's coming and and so he thought well maybe they didn't really understand the invitation so he sent out some other messenger slaves with a more explicit call and, and these guys went out and said hey the fatted calf has been killed all the preparations are finished it is time for the party now you need to come right now and still they ignored him They were too busy with their own agendas, doing their own thing, taking care of themselves. In fact, some of them just got annoyed with the slaves, the the guys proclaiming the invitation, and, and they mistreated them, and some even took them and murdered them, killed them. As you might expect, this enraged the king. So he sent out his armies to destroy those murders, but then he still had a wedding feast to put on. So he went and told his slaves, hey, go out into the highways and byways. Go out on the streets and the back alleys. Just invite anybody and everybody that you find. Don't exclude anyone. Go to anyone. And they did. And in that way, the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in, he noticed there was one guy there without the proper wedding clothes. And that meant that he had not been invited because proper wedding clothes were given to those who had been invited. And so he was thrown out of the wedding. It's the the final line of the parable that lets people know that there's a deeper spiritual message to this than just a story about a, a king having a hard time getting wedding guests there. 
It says this, then he king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into that outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, the religious leaders in the crowd listening to this parable, they understood that Jesus was speaking against them. They, they didn't understand the full spiritual impact uh, of this message because they weren't seeking God but they did get the point that they were the ones who were ignoring the king's invitation and they didn't like that so that leads us then into verse 15 which again really sets up the context for the question that Jesus asks verse 15 says then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. See, their, their twisted thinking kind of went this way. Jesus made them look bad in his parable, so they were going to trick him and trap him and make him look bad in front of all the people. And, and so in the following verses, you see that they came up with and plotted uh, three uh, entrapment type questions that they were going to ask and one after another they asked these questions only every time they asked one jesus came back with a brilliant uh response that completely blew apart their effort to trap him and it's after they had asked those three questions that uh that we then read now while the pharisees were gathered together jesus asked them a question what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They had tried to put Jesus on the spot. Now Jesus was putting them on the spot with his own question. But as I said at the beginning, this is not a question that you know, people in our day and age are really asking. So we, we want to make sure we understand the question. First is the phrase, the Christ. Right? Uh, a lot of times people hear the, the term Jesus Christ and they think that's his first and last name, you know? Uh, you know, you got El Cranky, you got John Bay, you got Jesus Christ, you got, you know. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, Jesus is his name. Christ is a title. And that's why in this verse it has the definite article, the, in front of it. The Christ. The Greek word Christ means Messiah. And there are all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament of God promising to send a Savior, a, a Redeemer to Israel. And the title given to this coming Savior was Messiah, or in the Greek, Christ. So all the different prophecies that you read about him were called messianic prophecies meaning that they pertained to the messiah so what jesus is asking here is whose son will the messiah be or, or to put it another way who's the father of the messiah the christ now you know when we hear that question we tend to think of the immediate relationship, right? I am the father of Daniel and Zachary and Isaiah. 
Ed Crossman is my father. We think of it in those types of terms. Who's your daddy? That's, when we hear the question, that's what we're thinking, right? Okay, the Jews would have heard this completely different. That, that is not what would have entered their mind at all. They would have heard, what's the Messiah's lineage? What, what family line does he come from? Because, see, for the Jews, it was always extremely important to trace your heritage back. That way, you could determine which of the 12 tribes you uh, belong to and whether or not you came from an important family within those 12 tribes. And, and as I said, this was incredibly important to the Jews. So they kept detailed records. In fact, of all the ancient peoples that they've dug up archaeological evidence of, the, the, the Jews kept the best, most meticulous records. They were like Ancestry.com long before computers ever came along. They, they kept it all down. So there were multiple prophecies in the Old Testament that declared exactly who line the Messiah would come from. This was not a hard question uh, for the Pharisees to answer. And so they immediately replied, he's the son of David. The, the, the most famous king in all of Israel. In, in fact, back in, in David's day, God spoke to him through the prophet Nathan and said, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established Forever, this is what would happen in the Christ, the Messiah. That's just one of many prophecies about him. So the Pharisees, they figured they were standing on pretty solid ground when they answered, hey, he's going to be the son of David. If this is a pop quiz, we're getting an A+. They knew it. But Jesus, he wasn't really interested in testing their knowledge of the messianic prophecies, right? He knew that the Pharisees knew what lineage the Messiah would come from. But see, he also knew that the Pharisees had a big problem. They had a wrong view of who this Messiah would be. They thought that he was going to be a powerful earthly king, a military genius who would lead Israel. And under his reign, Israel would throw off the oppressive uh, reign of the Romans and they, they would become the dominant, they, Israel, would become the dominant world power and nations would come and bow before them. He would be an awesome leader. He would be a great man. But merely a man. See, they... They thought only in terms of the physical, of saving their nation, saving their lives from subjugation to the Romans. And they really had no sense that the Messiah would be divine or that his salvation would have a primary spiritual nature. 
Now, they, they should have gotten that from their study of the Old Testament, but, but they didn't. And so it was that false view of the Messiah that Jesus wanted to challenge with his question. So after having them answer the obvious, yeah, he's the son of David, he follows up with another question. Look at how the exchange goes after they answer Jesus. He, that's Jesus speaking now, he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, you first read that, it seems like a a little bit of a convoluted exchange there, but basically, uh, Jesus' argument boils down to this. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls this coming Messiah, who would be his descendant, a descendant of his, which, uh, in other words, he would be his son because he was called his son no matter how many generations down the line he was. He calls this person Lord. And the word for Lord was Adonai, which is a divine name for God. And he says he's going to sit at the right hand of God. And in the Jewish mind and thinking, the right hand of God was recognized by all of them as being and indicating co-equal rank and status and authority. And and so Jesus is saying, hey, isn't it obvious here? The point David makes is that this, this Messiah would be divine. He would be God. Thus, The term son of David is accurate insofar as it goes. He would come from his lineage. But the Messiah, oh, he would be far, far more than just a man, just an earthly ruler. See, Jesus, he he nailed their inadequate view uh, of the Messiah as the fraud that it was. To the point where the text goes on to say no one was able to answer him a word, uh, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. They realized, man, we're in bad shape here. He's going to turn us back here, and we have no answer for this because he's right. So now maybe you're thinking, well, that's fine and dandy that Jesus put those Pharisees in their spot but what's that have to do with us today? Isn't this old news between them? And the answer to that question, I think, becomes obvious if you do one thing. Ask people. Ask your friends. Ask your coworkers. Ask your neighbors. What's Christmas about? Get more specific. Ask them who the baby Jesus is. And you know what? You'll get all kinds of answers for that question, and I guarantee you the vast majority of them will be just as inadequate as the Pharisees' view of who Jesus was. Because the answers you'll get back, you'll you'll hear things like, well, you know, Jesus was a good man who taught people to love one another. Or Jesus was a 
a great religious leader who showed people a, a better way to, to worship God. Some will claim that he was a prophet, a great prophet that should be revered, who, who came down to condemn man's intolerance and tell him, hey, we just all need to get along together. Others will claim that Jesus was an emanation from God or the highest of God's created beings. Still more will say that Jesus is a great God, a God among gods. Or maybe the way we more commonly hear it is that he is one of many paths that lead to God. Jesus knew that he had to challenge the Pharisees with their inadequate view of Christ. And we need that same challenge today, don't we? Jesus is far more than a sweet little baby laid in a manger. Far more than a prophet or a religious teacher. Not just one path among many to God. Here's what Jesus said about himself. In John 10, 30, he emphatically declared, I and the Father are one. He was saying, I am God. We are one in essence. He's not one among many paths to God. He is the one and true living God. Here's what God said about himself in Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Now I want you to understand something. God did not make that claim to exclusivity because he's some big egomaniac. He made it because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to be duped by any false claims to salvation. And guess what? Jesus does the exact same thing because Jesus is God. In John 14, 6, he gently, lovingly, but firmly says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So yes, it's true that Jesus was born as a baby boy wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid at a manger. He grew and matured and walked this planet fully human. He was a great religious instructor. He did teach people to love one another. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, condemned to die a criminal's death on the cross. He was mourned and buried in a tomb that was hewn out of rock, sealed with a giant stone rolled over the entrance. But as many of you here know, the rest of the story, Jesus was not merely a man. He was God incarnate, taking God taking on the flesh of a man. He was born of a virgin. 
a miraculous birth so that he could be fully man and fully God. And as God in the flesh, when he died upon the cross, he was able to take the sins of the entire world upon him, your sins and mine, and thereby paying the penalty of death that each and every one of us owed. Because of who he was, death could not hold him in the grave. It says of Jesus in the first chapter of Romans concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, son of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In one verse, we see that he is, in fact, the son of David, as the Pharisees claim, but he is so much more. He is also the Son of God. Christmas is about so much more than what the world believes. So much more than a baby laid in a manger. It's about the fact that God came to earth to save mankind from their sins. The Savior, the Redeemer, the Son of God. That's who Jesus is. And we have the joy and the privilege of worshiping the Savior and proclaiming the excellencies of this salvation to all who might listen. That's what Christmas is about. Father God, we thank you that Jesus was so much more than just a historical figure who made a big impact. So much more than a wonderful religious teacher. He was God in the flesh. He was our substitute on the cross. He is our one and only path of salvation. So God, we worship him with all of our hearts today. And we want to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.